This episode is brought to you by Evermill. Evermill makes the world's most elegant spice rack that features text to refill organic spices in compostable packets, as well as a suite of kitchen products that help you cook so you can focus on sharing meals with the ones you love. This episode is brought to you by Equipped. Equipped is a modern luxury fitness brand that creates stylish, compact, portable, and versatile fitness equipment that will inspire you to move anytime, anywhere, whether you have half a minute or half an hour. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Taro, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. I'm super excited to hear your story and building for Sigmatic. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So you have this awesome cowboy hat on. You're in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> so where are you from originally? I am a 13th generation family farmer out of Finland, and I still manage the farm with my brother. And in Texas, wow. where I now live, they have a saying that they say, big hat, no cattle. And for since 16, 19, we've had cattle until a few years ago when it became too labor intensive for my aging parents and me and my brother to manage the, the animals. So we gave up on, on cattle. So now that I don't have cattle, I switched to wearing hats. That's so funny. I love it. Well, and I love that you're 13th generation because I've always asked like, you know, when people ask you like, oh, what's your background? Like, what's your, where are you from originally? Whatever. And I, I always would hate that question as a kid because my I'd tell my dad, I'm like, dad, no, what's like, what am I? Am I some like German, European? Like what's in me? And he's like, you're American. I'm like, that's not an answer. Everyone is something else. Like, that's not an answer. No one else is giving that answer. And he's like, you're 14th generation American. My ancestors came over on the Mayflower. So it's it's the yeah. first time though I've heard anybody ever say the number of generations that they are, right? Because I think most people that I, you know, we come across are four, five, maybe two generations American or or something, you know. But I love that you said you're 13th generation. So what were you like growing up as a kid? Obviously, you grew up on a farm. Um, mm -hmm. what was childhood like? Were you entrepreneurial as a kid? you know, what was it like? And you kind of paint the picture for us with your family and your siblings and what was life like? Yeah. So I think there's like three um, kind of Venn diagram that my life was made out of. One was obviously living at the farm, um, which is probably not that different than living in a farm in Wisconsin or something like that. When I was a kid, our farm was big and today it's small um, because farm sizes have increase dramatically over just my lifetime but um, a fairly big farm at that time um, and doing farm work and drinking spring water eating wild food wild berries and mushrooms and then and the second part is my mom taught 
physiology, anatomy. So health and wellness was always a factor. So besides farming, it's health and wellness. In a way, it's like the slow and the fast, the modern and the ancient. You know, it's like, you know, what does the modern healthcare system say? Because that's what my mom was engaged in versus what does my father think about soil? And in his mind, a quarter is 25 years, not three months. And then the farm happened to be in Nokia, Finland, which um, during my childhood was the hub or kind of in general, Finland was a hub for technology. So I had a computer before there was internet. Um, and I had a smartphone in the nineties, like almost 10 years before there was an iPhone. So technology weirdly was a big part of my upbringing, even though otherwise we were very lo-fi, yeah. <laughs> lo-fi family, but it just happened to be that Finland was going through this technology revolution and uh, in the forefront of um, telecommunication in particular. So we had access to a lot of advanced technology early on. Very interesting. And so you said something about a triangle. Is it farming, tech, and what's the third? Health. Health. So, yeah. All right. Because your mom was bringing mostly, right? Because she was teaching and bringing, maybe mm -hmm. helping you learn a lot of that information. What were some of the biggest things you learned from her from a health perspective? Um, a lot, um, a lot of like rules and tips and stuff. And then, um, I actually attended a lot of her classes, um, because, because my parents were busy and we didn't have daycare. So after, um, some, some sort of big daycare system, I would go kind of like after school ish system and attend her classes. But what would be one thing I learned was probably, um, probably how averages work. That's like an interesting theme that I don't hear a lot of people talk about, but a lot of health advice, official health advice is based on large populations and to avoid major illnesses. So let's say you take how much vitamin D or how much calcium or milk should one drink is based on like avoiding osteoporosis um, on 97% of the population. So it's in a bell curve. So that taught me a lot about like, Hey, like health advice is often not about thriving, but it's designed to avoid major diseases and illnesses. And secondly, it's not for everyone. It's made for like a law of averages. So therefore, like people are individual and have individual needs. So I think that's like a big paradigm when you think about nutrition, which I later studied chemistry and nutrition. But so the main thing I learned from my mom was the idea that health advice, at least official health advice, is not about how to thrive as an individual, but is about how to avoid diseases on large population groups. So even though there's a lot of wisdom and knowledge there, you always need to understand that like what prevents a disease is not necessarily the same as makes you the best version of yourself. And then what's the official advice might not be the best advice for you. Right. That makes sense. That's pretty interesting to learn at a young age. Um, did you have siblings? What were your siblings like? Yeah, I have an older brother. He's he's much smarter than me. He's an engineer, um, works in in kind of environmental management of um, toxins leaking into nature and avoiding that. Wow. Well, that's important work. Um, how old, what's the difference between you guys? Yeah, we were three and a half years apart, which we were super close before teenage and after teenage. But during teenage, three and a half years is a little too much. So we fought a lot and I was probably super annoying to him. Um, so uh, you just wanted to follow him around, do what he yeah, did. And he's like, around. go away. 
<laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. And then use all his stuff because he was right. older. So yeah, he didn't. Oh like yeah, it. I'm the older sibling, so you know, I'm used to my sister, you know, going in my closet and wearing all my stuff, and I'm like, what are you doing? Like even to this day, she's like, oh, I forgot to pack socks, and I didn't pack this or that or pants, and I'm like, what am I? You know, she just like goes in my closet. I'm not used to it anymore because I'm way old. <laughs> you know, those days have passed a long time ago. So I'm always like so annoyed. I'm like, can you just pack socks next time? Like, I love you, but just stop wearing my socks. Totally. Like I was, I was the younger one for sure. So when you go and travel, is he, is he in Finland or is he in the States? Yeah. So between Finland and the U S I lived in eight other countries and he's stayed in Finland and lived in Finland, but traveled extensively, but still, still lives there and helps manage the farm throughout the year. So I can galley went around the United States with my business. That's awesome. And so you did, it sounds like you did a ton of traveling. Um, did you come to the States for school? I know you went to Cornell. Um, can you talk to us about your education and what made you want to come to the U S? Yeah. Um, so I studied initially chemistry and then nutrition, and then I later did an MBA, although I find it probably the least useful of my studies. Interesting. Uh, I like that. Um, Cause I don't know if business is a real science accounting and, you know, legal and this and that, but like, it's, it's pretty fluffy. Um, and you learn mostly it through practice instead of a case study and an MBA, but that's not here or there. I came to the U S um, obviously last of my stops and it was for my Dharma. So my purpose in life as I've defined it and mission, just like a company as individuals also have a mission and a vision and a strategy and tactics, right? We just don't call them those, Yeah. but it is to help people elevate their health and wellness. And this is the largest consumer market in the US, in the world, but also it is the one that arguably needs the help the most. So if you look at the healthcare spending per capita in the United States, it's much higher than any other country in the world by a significant margin, but people are not living longer or healthier. Right. So, you know, and that's just what the government spends. That's not what the individuals spend, which is crazy because then where I come from, the government does spend money on healthcare less than the US, but like then the individual yeah. doesn't have to spend much. Yeah. And it's also what's great about America is uh, the the culture, mm -hmm. which I don't hear a lot of people say because people love to hate on America, but it <laughs> there's is a lot also, to hate. <laughs> there's yeah. a lot to like, but there's also a lot to hate, especially if you're, I'm, my husband's German. So I hear it a lot of like yeah. the things that, you know, he doesn't like about the States. Particularly Europeans, like it's kind of the Europeans have a tendency to hate the newly rich, new warish. And for the, their head, like America is like an angry teenager. And um, um, so a lot of people love to hate the American culture, you know, and they take the low brow versions of it, like mm -hmm. professional wrestling or, you know, college football or whatever they use an example. But America is a very powerful culture. If you think of music, movies. So yeah. I always felt that if you can change people's, health and wellness habits here, it will have such an impact on the global world because people look to America for, for a lot of wisdom and advice and trends and, mm -hmm. and habits. So, um, yeah. so 
that's why I moved here is to make a meaning. It just happens to be that I met my wife here and now we have kids and <laughs> I've been, you know, business yeah. and team. But originally I came here temporarily to leave the world a better place, basically. That's interesting. So I want to get into really quick your mission in life. I think that's really interesting. Everybody, you know, comes on the show and talks about their mission in their business. And I do believe that, you know, kind of, especially as an entrepreneur, you kind of have to have that same personal mission and it kind of bleeds into your business mission, right? How can it not if you're the founder building it? Um, how did you know that that was your mission in life? And when mm -hmm. would, when did it really like, when was the moment where it clicked for you that, yeah, this is the mission that I'm here to do. Like, this is what I'm going to devote my life to. I think there's a lot of listeners right now that are struggling to find their mission. Mm -hmm. It's tough. It's like, what's my mission in life? It's like, it's a big question. It feels like a lot of pressure. It's a lifetime commitment. You know, it's a lot. So how do you, A, how does one find their mission in life? Mm -hmm. And then how do you know that that's it? How did you know? Yeah, I guess it's the biggest question we have is why are we here right what's it's, our purpose yes yeah and we all consciously or subconsciously know we're gonna die right mm -hmm. and in our back of our heads we're like it must mean something so what is the purpose and the limited time i have here right yeah and that's throughout all cultures and different times right and i don't have the right answer i can only share my journey and my journey is that I was 18 going 19 when I'm in the Finnish Air Force uh, doing a military exercise in the snow, lying there on the, on the snow because in, in military or Air Force or whatever, you rush to wait. You're always in a rush. And then when you get there, you wait a long time. So in these days, I'm waiting. So there's a lot of time to think. And I come to realize that everything I believe in uh, all my opinions, including my purposeful life, was potentially not mine. So it was from my parents, from my friends, from the TV, from, yeah. from culture, basically. Yeah. And I was like questioning is like, what is me? My name is not me. I can change my name. Mm -hmm. I haven't. It's clearly still a very difficult name, but like I could change it. It's not me. It's not. I could not be from Finland. I could change my nationality. I could change my profession. So like, what is me? Right. And even in, at that time in my, with my girlfriend is like saying, I love you is like, what's the I, what's the love, what's the you, but like, who am I? Right. Yeah. And it took me five, almost six years to like unlearn. So it was like, I kind of call it like peeling the onion yeah. and try to unlearn everything I'd learned to figure out what was true and questioning all the beliefs. And the more you peel the onion, the more you cry. Mm. And it took a lot of like conscious effort because a lot of that is subconscious of unlearning everything and then coming to an answer um, that I felt comfortable. But at the end of the day, I think life's purpose is what you give it. There is no right or wrong. You just need to find inner peace with it. Right. It's not something someone can give you or it's not something that is fundamentally right or wrong. It, if you believe in it, great, that's it. And I, that was the answer I got. And then I built values around it. <laughs> Do you think that your purpose is something that you can create 
or is it something that is like within you? Yeah. Nature or nurture, right? It's Mm -hmm. probably both looking at kids. Um, In Scandinavia, we're very gender neutral. And like my brother, for example, his kid, my nephew, they got no like gender specific stuff. And he's so obsessed with trucks. And I was laughing at that. And our older kid, our son, same thing, like nothing. And then one day he sees a truck on the street and he's just obsessed. Yeah. And I do think there's a nature part. And then obviously there's a nurture part. Mm-hmm. And I, I I do believe in whatever you want to call it, manifestation or, you know, speak it into existence. I feel like every entrepreneur does because you have mm-hmm. to believe if you don't believe who does, right? So mm-hmm. um, in one way or the other, we are the believers that something that's not today there we can do. So I believe both are there. And especially as an entrepreneur, I definitely think you create it. Yeah, totally. It's funny you say that with the kids, the same thing. It really shocked me that like my son, it's like one and a half. He's obsessed. He's been obsessed forever about balls, you know? And it's like, we never made a big deal about any of the beach balls or soccer balls that we have for him, but he has been obsessed with them. And he's, I feel like he's going to be so good at soccer one day because he's like (laughs) starting so early and he's really good at kicking this soccer ball. Like it's impressive. But anyways, you know, you see your kids and they naturally go to these things and you're like, why are you even doing that? And even the trash truck, he's like obsessed with the trash truck. So, you know, it's just really funny how you see kids that, you know, just kind of, they have such a clean slate, you know, and they, just are drawn to things for whatever reason. So you're right. There's like this natural piece. So it's almost like, what are we drawn to and how do you almost kind of harness that and create this kind of passion or drive and mission? I like to think of it like cooking, like you are given some ingredients in the kitchen, like you got some staples, this and that, some fresh ingredients, and it's your job to figure out what's there. So you got to open those cupboards and look at those boxes and figure out what these ingredients are like what is tamari and how do I use it? And then the speaking into existence part is the cooking part is you take those ingredients that you were dealt with, where you were born, genetics, this and that, and then you deploy those into a culinary, hopefully a masterpiece. (laughs) Exactly. That's awesome. And then you do it again and again and again until you're a master at it and you're the best person at making chicken curry or something, you know? Like, totally. Whatever that's, the recipe that's is. Phases in life and just like a company yeah. has a three to five year vision, we go through these phases, not better or worse than the other phase, but distinctly different. So same way, I guess you can think of it like cooking a menu, right? Mm-hmm. So how did you get the idea for, for Sigmatic? Where were you? What's your, what's the, you know, aha moment that you had for starting that type of business? Well, first of all, I was pretty entrepreneurial early on and I had a few unsuccessful ventures. Like what? Uh, Let's hear about those. <laughs> I, uh, I, and this is uh, more than what, 18 years ago, I was trying to, before there was a China phenomenon, I fi- Rick figured out that you can produce really affordable um, clothing items, custom clothing. So custom suits or custom dresses for women in Vietnam specifically, and then sell them at under Western prices, but at a huge margin, right? So you would get uh, this geo arbitrage. And that was one of the first businesses. Unfortunately, communication with the Vietnamese and the sizing differences on 
it didn't go so well. So that was a lot of the products got stuck in the customs and because yeah. I, I was not an um, expert at international business at that point. I don't, I don't know if I'm still, but definitely didn't know how to import the goods. Um, so that was an example of a, of a failed business. And then I ended up working at management consulting and doing online marketing for a large tech company in Switzerland um, to get more money and kind of experience. And I knew I wanted to start something and Four Sigmatic was a merger between two things was like kind of reverse engineering. Again, everything I knew about health, like what are the big problems in the world? Um, nervous system, immunity, hormonal balance. What would I recommend for those? What did I think is true today and in hundred years and coming up with the Four Sigmatic, uh, the company name, means the top 100 most nutrient dense foods in the world. And I think those will never go out of style. So if you think of the hundred most nutrient dense whole foods, they will be relevant forever, you know, and a lot of them are very familiar, like green tea, coffee, pea, coconut. And then some of them are a little more exotic, like turmeric, but then there's a group of these super nutrient dense foods that almost nobody knows, like ashwagandha and rishi and things like that and that was the vision the secondly the big aha moment came through the coffee as figuring out particularly the power of mushrooms that i felt was so underutilized they taste bad they taste pretty bitter so if you use real mushrooms they taste suboptimal and looking at particularly the american consumers our original products were teas because we were in europe but coming to us as we were launching and doing preparing to launch here um, came to realize that Americans don't know, have a tea routine and there is no, if you drink tea, you don't know what's good tea, unfortunately. Like you could drink airplane tea, you think it's an okay tea, but everybody right. knows what's a bad cup of coffee. So even if you're a yeah. truck driver in Iowa, you've had a bad cup of coffee. And I think the cool thing about coffee is that it's a bitter drink that people enjoy. Mm -hmm. um, Finnish people drink more coffee than anyone else in the world, like really? three times more than Americans. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah. And during Second World War, we're attacked both by Germany and Russia and we run out of coffee beans. So we brewed these mushrooms as a coffee substitute. And then after the war in the University of Helsinki, they studied the health benefits of these, this one particular mushroom chaga and found out all these nutrient, super high nutrient density in it particularly potentially the highest antioxidant food in the world. Like one cup of that is like eating 30 pounds of carrots or something like that. So oh my God, um, well, it sounds a lot easier to do that than eat 40 pounds of carrots. You know, carrots sure. aren't that great. Yeah. So it was like, in a way, like strategic thinking meets like operationally, how do we make this work? So that was it. But the main point was I want it to start a company. I didn't know if it was successful. I committed myself for two years initially. And I said, I will do this for two years, no matter what. And I'll have the two best years of my life. And even if the company fails, I had the two best years of my life. So in the first two years, a lot of the things maybe were partly suboptimal for the business, but they were guaranteeing that I had the two best years of my life at that point. So how did you balance that of like, I'm going to make this so fun, be the best years of my life, but I also want this to work. <laughs> so how did you um, kind of balance the fun and the seriousness of that timeline? One was that I couldn't take a salary. I like, didn't have money, like couldn't afford to. So I was living off of pretty much from savings. So 
I had the opportunity and I was forced to move to low cost countries. So initially when we were uh, creating the company, I was living in like Philippines or living in Asia and, and by itself, that was an exciting adventure for me, even though I knew I probably long-term not sustainable. So that was one part. Um, the other part is that the, the exploration period was intellectually very stimulating and very exciting and the unknown and, but also the opportunity and the possibility was so exciting that, you know, it is great when you finally have consumers who buy products and are happy, but there's something about that. It's almost like your firstborn child or something like the Marvel. You have no clue what you're doing, but there's a Marvel period that made it um, exciting. But more specifically, I it was nonstop, always on. So if it was not on for business, it was on socially, it was on travel, it was on experiences. So, um, you know, it's like you go hard in the pain, but then it's it's a mode that you're on that feeds itself. It's like the energy kind of creates momentum, right? Mm-hmm. And because you had limited funds and you bootstrapped this business quite a bit, um, how did you kind of test and validate the concept? And when did you realize you really had something going here? Yeah. Um, well, we tried a lot, but the things that actually worked by far is on a physical product is in-person sampling. So, um, I can't even tell how many tens of thousands of hours of what are known as demos, but you go to an a store. So think of going to Whole Foods and getting samples. Yeah, You sit there with a table and you give people drinks. You can test messaging. You can yell at them like, hey, do you want mushroom coffee? And then see how they react. Or you can give them a drink and they try it, get the feedback on flavor, price, packaging, this and that. So that is great because it's engaging. Um, so I think that is the one that worked the best. What were some of the most shocking reactions that you got from those demos? A lot, you know, obviously like, I don't know if drinking mushrooms today is a norm by any means, but it surely wasn't a thing in 10 years ago. And then, um, you know, what Four Sigmatic has done was like a, you know, pioneer many different form factors and things at the same time. So pretty much if it was, if they were not shocked, that was a shock. So, um, if to name a few, one of the main ingredients we use is called lion's mane. Mm-hmm. It's not the mane of a lion, but it's the name of a fungi grows in Northeast. So you can get it in New York, Vermont, yada, yada, yada. It looks like a kind of a pom-pom cheerleaders, pom-pom thing growing out of a tree uh, used by North Americans for a long time, maybe 14 generations. So it's mm-hmm. been, it's, it's part of American culture, but people don't know what it is. Yeah, I don't know. It's great for the brain, mental energy. And there's like, and then you mentioned that it's, it includes lion's mane and people are like, well, are these free range lions? (laughs) (laughs) I think I, I think I even asked that on the show a while ago. (laughs) I think think on the Mudwater episode, I asked like, so lion's mane, (laughs) there's I think a few other mushrooms or something that are named from uh, weird names. And you're like, they're a horse thing. Is there something with a horse or no? Maybe I was thinking the line. Um, and then the other one was we made so many people make jokes about psychedelics over the years that eventually we gave up and just started calling that our drink is everyday magic because it's like 
but, and we would make jokes that like shrooms are not just for college, but we had multiple people that came and took a sample left and came back 30 minutes saying that they have visuals and it's like what? practically impossible. So right. they gave themselves placebo, placebo visuals that I thought <laughs> was pretty funny as well. That's hilarious. Um, so yeah, those are some fun memories. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. When was the last time you looked in your spice drawer? If you're like me, you probably have to look at it every time you cook, which is a lot. And it looks like a complete disaster. Different size seasonings, different brands. It's a mess and totally uninspiring. That's until I discovered Evermill, the most beautiful and inspiring spice rack I've ever seen. And it looks gorgeous both on your countertop for everyone to see and compliment, or it looks great in your spice drawer too. Not to mention, they send you refills and compostable packets that you can get to delivered straight to your door simply by sending a text message. So if you're looking for an amazing gift idea, you have to check it out. They also just released two new products, a white marble salt well and an aluminum pepper mill, perfect for the person who you think has everything. You can get 15% off by using the promo code stairway15 on evermill.com. That's 15% off site-wide for the first time ever using the code stairway15 at evermill.com. Do you struggle to find time to go to the gym or even just work out at home somehow? What about the ugly weights you're probably hiding in your closet or under your bed? Out of sight, out of mind. Am I right? Meet Equipped, a female-founded luxury fitness brand with a no-pressure approach to movement that creates gorgeous weights that look so good, you can place their U-shaped weight called the U-bar on your coffee table and your friends will probably think it's a new art piece. Or if you're on the go, just throw on their U-wrap super stylish vegan leather ankle weights so that you can get a little workout in while running your errands in style. Featured in everything from Vogue to the Financial Times, Equipped makes it easier to move through life. And if you're looking for a great gift idea this holiday season, you can get 20% off on EquippedMovement.com using the promo code STAIRWAY20. That's 20% off luxury fitness equipment using the code STAIRWAY20 on EquippedMovement.com. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So what were some of the, you know, I know that you've led many different types of teams, even before starting um, your company. Can you kind of talk about leading teams and especially remotely um, multicultural teams. I uh, you know we talked before, this is something you've have a lot of experience in. And I think a lot of founders are trying to manage remote teams today and have never really done it before. Maybe they've never mm-hmm. even managed people period. And now they're forced to do it remotely. Um, what advice do you have? What mistakes have you made? What can you tell us about managing remote teams? Yeah. So Four Sigmatic was built remote, fully distributed from day one. Now we are headquartered in LA and we have more and more in-person meetings. But for 10 years that we've been operating, it's been mostly remote. And before that, I was part of a running a team that was in over 100 countries. Um, and what I would first say is that it's absolutely possible. And it's been done more than people realize. Yeah. So everything has its pros and cons, but it's absolutely possible. And some examples I like to say is like your CPA 
or whoever is your accountant or auditor is probably not in person with you, but they're still able to close your books or audit your financials, right? Yeah. Your lawyers probably are not with you, right? So you are remote with lawyers. So there's a lot of these service providers that have been used for decades and decades remotely, uh, successfully, even before technology was good, and there was never a problem. Um, now that I, what I would say is that there is nothing that can replace in-person connection. So particularly when is in-person time needed, even in a remote environment is when there are new employees or the team is new because culture is so hard to create culture from nothing remotely. It's much more easier to maintain the culture. And once you get to know someone, like think of your best childhood friends, there's no problem taking a phone call with them and you feel deep connection, but it's because of all those in-person hours before, but then you call a stranger and you've never met them or you see right. them on a video call like this, right? you just don't have that. Right. So if there's new people, um, what do you do? Like what, how many hours do you need with this new hire, with these new teams for their mm -hmm. bonds to be formed? So we, for example, our office is not for working. It's for gathering. So how our office design, even though there's work desks, it's pretty much there's like stadium seating and there is like a meeting rooms. And the whole point is that when we're there, we're collaborating. And then secondly, when we meet every team member, we meet regularly on smaller groups. But when the whole company comes together twice a year, it's actually not much about working. It's about like doing a scavenging, a scavenger hunt or things like that, getting to know people and playing games, honestly, is the, one of the best things you can do is various forms of games and or icebreakers, because those are ways how you get to know people and the true self. Like we all kind of have a mask again, consciously or subconsciously, we have these cultural patterns and we put it on. But when we play games, we tend to lose those and become our true self. There's something childlike What's about it. Yeah. So what's one of your what's your favorite icebreaker question? Um question. Uh I like two truths and one lie as like a, as a kind of an icebreaker game. I like that. As like because you get three stories and one of them is not true, but he also tells what kind of lie you would tell. So what that, are your two what tell me three things and I'll tell you which one's the lie. Is that what the right that's how it works, right? I tell you which one's the lie. Mm -hmm. I've um, been to the edge of space, to the stratosphere. I have uh, tattooed my children's name on my body. And then I have, I have hitchhiked through Italy. I feel like that might be true because you did so much traveling. I don't know. I'm going to say the tattoos, but you, I can't tell if you have any tattoos. So this is like a total wild guess. Do you have your kids ta names tattooed? No, I don't. You That's don't? Not... I got it. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> That's awesome. I am. Um... That's funny. I was like, that's really, you know, sick of tattoos. Yeah. Um, that was a good one. So yeah, I mean, icebreakers are so important. So that's what you do to kind of like, you, so, you, I like that you use the office not as a place to work, but as a place to gather. That's awesome. Yeah. So I would say three things too, is like, it's absolutely possible. We've done it for around the world for many, many years. We just don't think of it that way because the office was such a norm before COVID and 
Secondly, you still need in-person time. So even if you're a remote team, there's an importance for human connection, but ideally you're not working next to each other on computers, writing Excel, but you're collaborating on something like a product launch or something, or just getting to know each other as humans or traveling together. Um, And then what I would say is like structure is really important, uh, particularly if there's multiple time zones. So you do need ground rules. There is a lot of asynchronous communication that can happen, but you need to create boundaries, maybe more than you would need in an office. Like so, what? Well, for example, for us is like, it's easy if you're at home to always be on a Zoom call or a meeting. Mm-hmm. So we take Wednesdays called Working Wednesday and there's no meetings in- internally. You could have meetings with customers or something like that. But Wednesdays are for like actually getting stuff done. And this is so no we, Zooms, no Zoom calls on Wednesdays. No. And then there is certain hours that are more effective. Again, time zone does play a role here, but like we try to block some of those morning hours effectively because those are tend to be times for people to be do their best work. Yeah. Not for everyone, but for many. Yeah. And then it's like the only time you have to get back on emails, right? It's like the morning, you're just starting your day. You've got all of the, your inbox is full. And I just, and to get through a few of those, I think can help you feel like I achieved something this morning. <laughs> yeah, for people. sure. Yeah. So I love the working Wednesdays and I love that you have your workspace as a place to gather. Is there anything else that you do that you think is different or unique to your business and leading your team? Yeah, a lot. Actually, <laughs> a lot of weird things, what? Uh, a lot of weird rules and, and systems um, what I would say is, um, at the end of the day, when we've done a bunch of these, but the gimmicky stuff that became really popular, like virtual happy hours during COVID, and they were probably mm-hmm. needed because people were scared at that point. I would say generally do not work. Right. So, yeah. um, it's like they sometimes work temporarily, but they're not, they're the sizzle, not the steak. Uh, and the stake is having really clear roles and responsibilities and objectives and, and then true caring and commitment from the team to be there. So I would make sure job descriptions are clear, job objectives are clear, and then making sure that if somebody's not engaged, you address it pretty quickly. Cause in an office, you can spot someone non-engaged a little faster than virtually you can kind yeah. of post. Yeah. So that would be something to be mindful because there's a huge amount of trust mm-hmm. when you work remotely and you just want to make sure that, because if it's not just the business owner or the CEO's problem, but it's a, it's a team, like team will know if somebody's not contributing. So taking action on that. Interesting. And how do you filter for that? When you say it's in the job description and when you say you make these things very clear up front, what are you doing that's different than other job posts or communications? Like, what are you putting in there? Well, this is one of those things where I'm not claiming to be an expert. It's more like I've made it enough many mistakes where the job description was not clear or yes. the job objectives are not clear and it backfired. Um, all our employees write a 30-30. It's like you review your last 30 days, your next 30 days, and then you have a one-on-one meeting with your manager. You go through all your KPIs for your job that were pre-agreed. And then also the task you yourself set out for the next 30 days. So you have a record, kind of a snapshot, and then you set objectives for the next 30 days. And then you review those 
milestones with your manager um, the next month. So I feel like that is very helpful. We also write a playbook, which is basically like 10 to 20 page document that outlines everything about your work um, that I think works like in some an operations types of manual. Like Sorry. an operation, like an operations manual for your job, basically. Right. Like, so if you were to leave, um, you have something that you can pass as a manager to the next employee to know what to do or expect or how to use certain things. Correct. And that works for certain types of roles and organizations better than others. But what I would mm -hmm. say is it helps a lot if you have a transition for sure. But most importantly, I think it is like an Eisenhower quote or something, but like, Planning is essential, but plans are useless. I think it is very helpful, particularly in a remote environment for every person in the company to spend a little bit of time to think about what is their job, what is actually matters and writing it down. And by doing that once, and even if you never look at it again, you probably are better at your job. Absolutely. And how often are, or is it the team meeting? Yeah, I love this 30, 30, um, 30 days review. What's your goal for the next 30 days? That sounds like one monthly meeting with the manager. Mm -hmm. How often are most of the teammates or employees kind of meeting with their managers or each other on a weekly basis? Well, now about half of them are in LA area. So they sometimes meet more often, but in general, the cadence is depends on your role, the team and how high you're up. So for example, if you're salesperson, you're probably used to traveling historically. Mm -hmm. If you're in manufacturing, you probably have to visit manufacturing sites. So there's roles that are more accustomed to traveling and they're on the go. And there's roles that are more required to be more collaborative, such as innovation and marketing, right? Require mm -hmm. a lot of like in-person collaboration. And then if, if you're an accountant, you probably need to meet less often than if you're the CFO, right? So it surely matters. So some of us meet monthly, um, kind of on the senior level, more in the marketing. And then there's like the one level down is quarterly and then the whole company twice a year. Awesome. What do you guys, you go to LA twice a year for the meetings? The last was New Orleans. Before that was LA. Before that was Iceland. Oh, nice. So everybody gets to kind of travel around for these two meetings a year. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, um, it's a good opportunity to travel if everyone's traveling anyway, but you know, at the same time, it is sometimes when we, we had really exotic team location meetings initially, but like when you start having kids and then traveling internationally can be tricky just for family reasons. So mm -hmm. we've kind of, it's more and more become domestic and locations that are easy to get in and out of. Yeah. And so I know we are coming to time here. Um, what are some roadblocks or I guess like big challenges looking back on your journey as an entrepreneur and building this business that you would kind of advise other aspiring entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs listening that are in the weeds right now building their business? You know, what are some things that you've, big things that you've learned along the way that you think would be mm -hmm. helpful? Yeah, I think like if I look at myself 10 years ago, I probably thought a lot of the issues were around just not having the skills, like mm -hmm. the actual skill sets. Yeah. But I would say the more you advance in your career, you realize it's a lot about like beliefs in and personality traits that limit you or help you, right? And that you come to this dichotomy a lot is like, is 
is an entrepreneur, especially at a startup, you have to believe, you have to be kind of like have this vision and go for it. But then at the same time, that's very taxing for, can be taxing for others. And, you know, there's this first few years, you're like group of pirates. And then eventually when the company, if it's lucky enough to become huge, it becomes the Navy somewhere in the middle, you're like the coast Guard, uh, trying to navigate it. And there's a transition, but maybe more importantly is, is being yourself is, um, in that journey is pretty important and vulnerability to admit your flaws, but then not be too harsh on yourself about those. Cause like, you know, if, if you would not have this drive or this passion or vision, the company wouldn't exist either. If, if yeah. you would be, agree with everyone else. So entrepreneurs or type A personalities can be sometimes a little mucho in different ways with different types. Um, either they're obsessed product centric or they're like, you know, eccentric sales and marketing focused or whatever um, is just being okay with that, but then being also aware of that. It's interesting you said, so it sounds like you're saying you almost need less skill set from like a leadership or all these other perspectives in building the actual business and more of a natural skill set, I guess, or personality to want to lead, to want to innovate, to have that natural drive to build. Yeah, and initially you need the skills um, to either raise funding or ability to sell and build products or services because if you don't have that, you can't hire anyone else. But and mm-hmm. as you achieve product market fit, initial traction, and one way or the other, you build enough skills, it becomes more about beliefs and personality traits that are very much the backbone of leadership. You could learn these leadership skills, but I think those are just fake uh, I say, I think the American expression is lipstick on a big pig. Um, if you are not like comfortable with yourself and who you are and kind of, and maybe your limiting beliefs or personality traits prevent you from growing past a certain point. What have you had to overcome to get to where you are? Well, quite a bit, obviously I'm not in my native country and I'm not speaking my <laughs> native language and build a category that didn't exist. Uh, but, but really it's like your inner demons. It's like chips in your, in your shoulders, but chips in your pocket is I believe what venture capitalists love to say, but at the same time, it's like those demons and those, those that drive you and motivate you are also like eating you from the insides. So what, what was your demon that was keeping you going? Um, so I have a, I do the shadow work. So I have, I mean, uh, it's a, probably a longer conversation, but there's what I describe as the shadow is something about you that you think is true, but you don't want it to be true. So every person of us has a part of us that we do think we are, but we don't want to be. And that's our shadow. And if you ignore it, it gets power. And then it starts to self-sabotage you. Um, um, there's a good Netflix documentary now uh, with um, um, about this this shrink in LA, Stutz, uh, Phil Stutz. Oh, I, I'm watching that right now. Yeah. So, what's your shadow? So, actually, I believe a lot in that work and and his books, and happened to know his co-author and met him mm-hmm. before years ago, and I find it very fascinating. But my shadow is 
is basically the character from the Disney movie Up, the Boy Scout. I don't yeah. Know if you've seen it. Yeah. Have, have you seen it? The guy with all the badges who's overly eager. Um, it's, Do you remember the movie? It's been a Up, while. Disney with the balloon. Anyway, yeah. That's my that's my shadow, and I uh, sounds really weird, but I kind of sometimes have to talk to it to align with it, and if and get comfortable with the part of myself that I don't like. And if I don't do it, then like it, it comes out in the form of leadership or in life in general and negative, these lashes out. Um, that Shadow, you mean like the, the person, the character up with all the badges you're saying, you, what does that mean? You are like the, you want to be achieving a lot or, and if you're not achieving a lot, you like, can, how, how do you explain that character with all of those badges? Yeah. It's like, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. Like you have to watch the movie because there's a lot of layers. Uh, oh. in it. But, but but basically, yeah, it's like an overachieving, overeager, kind of somewhat um, cares a lot, but low EQ is not aware of other people's feelings and the moments or the old guy. And his, he's just like in his zone because he has to get the badge. And, <laughs> that's and, awesome. and yeah, that's, and follows the rules. Mm. you know that kind of guy that's really cool um well thank you for sharing your shadow i agree we all have one now i have to think about what mine is i'll have to reflect on that a little bit and dig a little bit um but thank you so much i know we've got to wrap it up um do you have any final advice uh for entrepreneurs tuning in and what's next for for sigmatic yeah i i guess the for your audience obviously the name indicates the CEO stuff, but I, I, I highly recommend that, you know, entrepreneurship is really in vogue right now. And we're all in a way entrepreneurs in today's society, but at the same time, like um, it's not for everyone, <laughs> what I would say. And if it's not your path, it's totally fine. It's no lesser. And actually you probably might end up being happier, better joining an awesome team and maybe partnering with a visionary entrepreneur of some sort. Um, and then for Four Sigmatic is we just launched with Walmart and kind of trying to help middle America, mainstream America, elevate their health and wellness with, and particularly their mental wellness with the products we create. Amazing. Thank you so much, Taro. Thanks so much for sharing your story, your advice, everything. Really appreciate you being on the show today. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.